Do you love racing? Then you've come to the right place. We discuss current topics in most asphalt series, as well as deep dives into the history of racing, race cars, and the drivers. I'm NASCAR driver Derek Cope. I share some of my personal stories, as well as highlighting those people that shaped my career and others. I'm Alicia Cope, and we also take on controversial and engaging topics on many subjects, including NASCAR, as well as tips and tricks that have worked for us in building teams from scratch, keeping relationships, and finding new roads. Hopefully our experiences will inspire you to reach your own goals. Let's get started. Welcome back to Race Theory. This is episode 42. It's about road racing. It's something that, you know, I did early in my career, and it has now become even more important in the world of NASCAR, as well as a heightened global look uh, of road racing in its current state. So we really felt compelled. Obviously, this was the past weekend was a big uh, weekend of racing, and they were all road racing. And for the last couple of weeks in NASCAR, it's been on the road racing vein. And, you know, we went to Portland with the Xfinity Series a couple of weeks ago. And I, I have ran Portland. I've enjoyed racing there. And it was a great little race. And it was good to see they had great weather, which is always nice. And, you know, a great race all the way to the end. And then, you know, there's a big typical thing that happens in road racing because it always comes down to the braking zones. The ways you pass are to outbreak somebody and get position on somebody. So, that's always been the big controversy, right? And we've spoken about that in one of our past episodes as well. So it come down to uh, a deal where Parker Kligerman, you know, put him like four wide going in the last corner and forced, I think it was uh, Allgaier and uh, Sheldon Creed to the outside through the chicane. And, and, you know, Allgaier made a really quick decision, managed to get back out right behind. Custer took the lead. He got out behind Custer, had to run him down by about five or seven car lengths and was able to get to second, but, you know, he had led the race and obviously was, um, you know, his demise on that final corner, them getting to him, but Cole Custer went on to win and, you know, Allgaier, you know, gets second, but a great race. And you're going to have that kind of, there was no real malice involved, but it was just a, you know, a deal that it was his, his shot to win. He takes his chance and, you know, um, ends up taking out, you know, somebody else. And that's how, that's how road racing is. It's always about somebody taking a shot, taking the, you know, a last ditch effort, trying to outbreak somebody. And then if they get into somebody, you know, there's all everybody else suffers. And then, you know, either that guy makes it through and becomes the hero or he's a zero and he doesn't, he doesn't get what he's, you know, what he's. Well, it's so difficult to pass on a road course. It's not like an oval. So yeah, you, it, it definitely has, t- times of boringness but then towards the end when it's time to go everyone's trying to make a move so it does kind of save the best for last in in those type of races i think where the boring comes on i think is is physically uh if you're maybe if you're there and if you are a competitor or you're a fan and you're you know parked in a certain location tailgating for instance but for those types of events it is all about 
the experience. You know, you're there, you got your kids there, they're running around, you're tailgating, you're cooking, you're barbecuing, you're watching the race, you're seeing the cars come by in certain areas, and you maybe have a TV that you're watching the optics on television. Yes, if you've got a TV, then definitely road course uh, racing is a lot more entertaining than it, it used is. to be because you can see all areas of the track. But as far as like a visual from an in-person standpoint, definitely for me, doesn't hold the allure that an oval does, especially. I think what the, the thing that has transpired over time is obviously all the things that they have that can give better optics. The drones, for instance. Right. They have ways, especially now, to, you know, to use the drones and different cameras. They use a lot of cameras. They are physically making transitions to other corners very quickly and being able to keep up with the event. So optically on television, it's very well received, in my opinion. So I think that, you know, that's where things are going because the venues are capable of being, uh, you know, you got to adapt something to a, a venue. You can run a street course like they're going to uh, in Chicago. They've done it in Detroit. We just came back from the Detroit Grand Prix where the IndyCar and Trans Am TA2 was at. So they are capable of doing that. I've ran in the streets of Tacoma, in the Shucks Tacoma Grand Prix, so Spokane. So they are conducive to putting on major events that will draw people and help the communities, the local communities. So uh, it's, if you think, if you look back, you think about when we were racing in the 90s, when you can bring, you know, there's an influx, Charlotte, like the week, the two weeks at Charlotte, mm -hmm. an influx of over $200 million to the local economy. That's a huge amount of money and revenue that's come into the to the community. So, you know, they do a lot of good things and the events, you know, of these magnitudes, they're, you know, they're worth having. And I think so getting back on the the road racing side, Xfinity was up next uh, and they were, you know, at Sonoma for the first time in a very long time, which I love Sonoma. I guess I love the wine. I love the atmosphere. You don't. Uh, but I do, I do like being there. And we were out there for the GR86 and, uh, you know, and the, the TA2 deal last year. And so I really enjoy going out there. And so I enjoy to watch a race because I like racing on the racetrack itself. And, you know, it was the uh, first time that they'd been back there so long that it really gave another opportunity to the cup drivers. And it gave those guys opportunities to get rides and be able to you know, get some time on the racetrack so that hopefully their cup effort is better come Sunday. Albeit, the cars are drastically different now. So either you can draw certain things from it and get used to the racetrack and how tires degradate and, you know, but you're not on the same tire. You're not on the, you know, you're at H pattern versus X sequential. And we saw in the race that Suarez, Daniel Suarez was in the Xfinity race and he ultimately makes a mistake early in the cup race because he was thinking about H pattern instead of the sequential. And he went back to, he went down in gear instead of going up and could have ended his day. Ultimately didn't, but that just goes to show you that you really have to be disciplined if you're going to make those kind of changes back and forth from the series. But we did see, you know, uh, the top four positions go to the cup drivers, Eric Alamarola, AJ Allmendinger, Kyle Larson, and Ty Gibbs. And the first guy that was an actual regular was Parker Kligerman, and he finished, uh, you know, fifth uh, at the Xfinity race. And so well, and of course, you're going to see that. Like you always say, the cream rises to the top. And we participated in the Xfinity series when there was 
a lot of cup drivers. And I always disliked that and felt that that was not, um, I hate using the word not fair, but it's just not appropriate. And I know that they're using this as time to um, get to know the track, but I feel that it's not appropriate to use the Xfinity as a practice ground for cup drivers because cup drivers have more money, they have more speed, they have more experience, and ultimately they're going to win races that the Xfinity series drivers should have the opportunity to win themselves. I can I can understand that, but I also, from a driver's perspective, I look at it um, for some of the cup drivers that don't have as much, as much experience possibly that are coming up through there. And you really, I think basically you have to use that as, as a gauge sometimes. And as a young Xfinity driver coming up through the ranks, you, you, when you race against better people, you become better and you have to elevate your game. You obviously have to be able to, you know, try to emulate, watch, you know, get some sense of what transpired there and grow as a race car driver. So I think it does have benefits in that way. And, you know, if you were, you know, if you're not going to win the race or vie for the win, you know, at least you're going to get something out of that that is going to help you down the road win races. And, you know, it's, it is, it's a double-edged sword. Uh, and you know, back in the days, those were when the guys were doing that, you know, that's the way that they were getting the television coverage and the attendance and they were getting the actual viewers, you know, the viewership up because, you know, they wanted to see the cup drivers and they had to see them on Saturday, you know, they could see them on Saturday and they can watch them on Sunday as well. So, you know, there's, there's reasoning obviously behind everything, but that, um, that's really what happened. Uh, and you know, it's, uh. It was a good race. Uh, I thought that it, um, you know, it, there was kind of going back and forth. And as far as, uh, you know, who was doing what and, you know, ended up making some choices uh, strategy wise that, you know, put people in positions to to uh, to win races. You know, Kyle Larson had dominated in qualifying. Looked like he was going to be a major factor and just wasn't able to to make it happen. And Eric did a really nice job. And it was fun to see him and his family out there. And, you know, the after the the victory lane uh, celebration. So yeah, good, uh, good, uh, you know, fun, warm ending, which I, I enjoyed. So, and then it was, you know, to the cup series and, and this is kind of like uh, a segue to the rest of our episode really is the cup series with the next gen car. And, you know, it was the race itself, uh, you know, was a bit of a bore early. I think, you know, there was two dominant cars, one really dominant car, and that was Denny Hamlin. He streaked out to a, a large lead and was really much kind of taking care of business. And the only one you could tell was starting to make inroads was Martin Truex Jr. And he was coming and, you know, very methodically approaching, getting trying to run down Denny. And then all of a sudden, he really started making some major gains and he was there. And Martin ends up, you know, taking the lead. And from there, he was the dominant force. And pretty much, well, you know, nobody could match the pace that he had. And they are started looking for alternatives, strategy-wise, to be able to make a difference there, see if they could find some way to undercut something, you know, pretty much do a situation where they could put, you know, tires on, stay out on tires, just get off sequence, do some things, get track position because they've been mired back in the pack. And a multitude of people started doing that, including Chase Elliott and, uh, 
you know, AJ and Almendinger and um, a bunch of those guys. And Kyle Bush did the same thing. And Kyle was the only one that really could find the pace to utilize it and stay out front in that manner with Martin Truex lurking and coming and ultimately taking the lead. And, but, you know, Bush was able to stay there, which was credible for how good a car Martin had, but still there was just nobody that was going to really deter Martin Truex Jr. from winning the race. So it was, that was it. That was kind of the way it went. And it was over and it was, uh, a good race, enjoyable race. I think, uh, you know, it was cool conditions out there. So it really was conducive, uh, for everything, tire wear and the drivers themselves and everything. And the fans probably had a really enjoyable time. So it was, uh, all in all a well received weekend for, for NASCAR, uh, cup racing. So with that, that kind of leads me to the biggest, my guess, racing, you know, spectacle that happened on this past weekend, and that was the 24 Hours of Le Mans. And there had been a lot of hype and a lot of discussion and, you know, a lot of excitement around this year's 24-Hour Le Mans because it's the centenary edition of Le Mans. It's 100 years since they started, so they've been racing at Le Mans 100 years. And the other exciting aspect was that it had been 50 years since Ferrari had been at Le Mans. And if any of you have watched Netflix and you've seen Ford versus Ferrari, or if you haven't, you owe it to yourself to watch it because it gives you a depiction of really some interesting things that transpired. Uh, you had Carroll Shelby, you had Ken Miles, you had the Ford effort uh, where, you know, Henry Ford II was, you know, very headstrong, wanted to go beat Ferrari. He wanted a Ford to beat Ferrari. And the effort uh, and the failures first, and then finally the uh, the ability to make that happen and what they went through. And, you know, embellished to some degree and some things were changed. But for the most part, it was really interesting to see how much effort back then in the 60s it took to get to Le Mans and to run a 24-hour event. And, you know, it gives you some idea before you would, you know, have interest in looking at Le Mans. I'll be honest with you. You know, I have been a stock car driver my my whole life. And I have been fortunate enough to run three Daytona 24 hours. So I enjoyed it. I loved this type of racing. And it really, it tested you. And the conditions that you had to be put through tested you. And as any race car driver wants, is, is you want to be pushed. You want to push yourself to the limits of, yeah. Well, some race car drivers don't. Well, if right. you're, if you're a good saying, race car driver, yes, you want to be pushed to the limits. Push the envelope always. I, th I, think, I think ultimately, no matter what your, your level of proficiency is, you, you push. And yeah, some people don't push themselves to that degree. But I think when you're at the highest levels of sport and you find a way to push yourself beyond what you're tr you think you're capable of. You push past your fears, your, your things like that. So I think those are the things that I find intriguing about it. So I was able to run the, you know, a GTP car, which is very similar to what the new hypercar LMDH, LMH cars are. A lot of ground effects, 
really, you know, the, the highest degree of, of technology. So I got to drive one of those. I drove open cockpit Lola, uh, which was for Archangel Motorsports. And I drove for Ferrari of Washington with Bill Lauberlin and Cor Wagner with a, a Modena Ferrari, which paddle shifters, but full bodied, kind of like the GTE division in this year's Le Mans or the GTD pros and all that. So it really, I have a true respect for it and I loved watching it and I've gained a lot more, you know, I guess intrigue about it and I pay more attention to it now that we're doing the Trans Am and I'm doing coaching and we're doing more road racing. Right. So it was something that I started really looking forward to. And I guess the segue from Cup is the fact that the uh, single entry garage 56 was something that was very intriguing. And if you don't, or if you're not aware of what that is, or if you've heard about it, it really is a special one entry that they put in every year at Le Mans that is for a, you know, something out of what the normal series are there to showcase. And you're able to go and run, you know, in the race within your own division. So you're really kind of racing your own race to some degree, but you're able to showcase the product you bring and the brand. And this was a collaboration that was between Hendrick Motorsports and Goodyear, NASCAR, IMSA, and Chevrolet. And they put this deal together with a next-gen car. So the current car that's in NASCAR, that we just saw a race at Sonoma, it was that car. They put lights on it, front and rear. They put carbon, big carbon brakes on it, which instead of the steel brakes that they run in NASCAR, they made some modifications to the engine and the valve train to run 24 hours, which those guys all have the ability to do because they've run the Cadillacs and worked on those engines, you know, for uh, the 20, uh, for IMSA. And then they actually ended up taking out about, they put dive planes on it too. So if you see the pictures of the car or you want to go look at it, they have a bunch of those little canards and the dive planes on the back quarter panels and the front to create more downforce and they altered the front, uh, you know. Uh, I was going to ask what made it not lift off the ground if it's the same body style. Yeah, same, same deal. But it really, you know, was, it was, you know, the same type of engine power wise and everything that they run in NASCAR. So you have the same throaty, you know, sound and, you know, this car's bigger than most of the cars there. But the thing, they prepared it and it performed. Chad Canals from Hendricks was over the operation. Greg Ives was the crew chief, you know, who was coming with Chase Elliott. And, uh, he was doing the crew chiefing. And then, you know, the group of Hendrick Motorsports that pretty much went over there and did the car. The fun thing about it was they were going to pit the car as they would in Cup with a regular jack. Guys go around the car, jack the car up, pit it, and this come to standing ovations. They, the people over there. <laughs> I'm sure that's France, a lot more exciting than the air jack. In France, it was, yeah, it was something that they got to see, you know, this. How form. NASCAR pits a car. Yeah. And they, they loved it, you know, and throughout the, you know, the time and the course, every, they kept saying things about, you know, the car, nobody slept because they kept hearing this thunderous car come by. <laughs> you know, it's not a night. bumblebee car. And all through the night, right? <laughs> so you get low to sleep with the, with the white noise of the, uh, regular cars. And then you get the, you know, here comes the NASCAR car down through there, right? And just standing <laughs> ovation. So it was very well received. And I think, no, what did they call it? Le Monster. <laughs> <laughs> so it was, it was just, it was kind of a, a fun 
thing, right? And I think that, uh, you know, it really was, I think, set out, right? you know, for IMSA, the one thing that has happened here in road racing, and it really is interesting because, you know, Jim France, he loved IMSA. He, he owns IMSA. He created IMSA. So he loves road racing. And that really is why I think we've had the departure of the normal type stock car towards this new next gen car, which is more of a road racing, you know, uh, type version car, all fully independent front and rear suspension. You know, it's got a sequential shifter, shifter in it, right? So it's, uh, it's a lot different overall. And I think that, you know, his whole premise was he's always, and they've always tried NASCAR, everybody, the, it's important to have the OEMs there. You know, you need to have the Fords, the Chevrolets, the Dodges, the, you know, the Toyotas, you know, all this. And then in this case, when it comes to Le Mans and to road racing in general, you're looking for Ferrari, you're looking for Peugeot, you're looking for uh, you know, Toyota, you know, you want high, you want Lamborghini, you want, now they got, they got companies I didn't even know existed. I mean, Glickenhaus, Toyota. I mean, you go down the line, there are so many people, Cadillac is there and they are making major, major inroads there. So. There is a lot going on there, and the OEMs have gotten behind this, and they are all there, and there's more coming. So this was really like the first real test. They already ran this year, you know, the 24 hours of Daytona with the with the LMDH cars, and very successful, great racing. Uh, Porsche, you know, were in there with Penske, so they've all got relationships. Ganassi with Cadillac and Action Express with Cadillac. So they were all doing all of this in hopes that. When it come time for Le Mans, the hypercars built by the manufacturers were going to, these cars were going to be competitive with them. So the rules packages are built around this global type of interaction of racing, which is, which is great. And I think it's, you know, it was kind of a, a deal where, okay, it's going to be a wait and see thing, but everybody just jumped in and started doing it. You know, so they different, like the chassis can be, you know, a Duquesne or they could be like a, a Leger, or they could be a Orica or whatever. They were building off a chat, but you had to build the car and, you know, your, your whole combination, what engine you went with and all that. So very interesting and, you know, pretty monumental that Ferrari, who had been out of Le Mans racing, you know, for 50 years and where it was adamant, Enzo Ferrari was adamant to be in Formula One. That was what, how the technology would sell cars for them. You know, everything hand built and done within the factory, they come back. And at first blush, when they first were testing these cars, they had major speed. So here you got Ferrari, BMW, Porsche, you know, you're going to have, going to have, you know, oh, Lamborghini. It's exciting. And I think for the fans, yeah, they was, it was a, you know, it was a kind of a precursor to what's going to happen to Le Mans. And it was not without a rising success. Well, and I, I want you to touch a little bit more on this Garage 56 car from America and basically a NASCAR effort. Um, they did very well, did they not? I mean, they surprised everyone. The expectation was very low and they ended up just blowing it out of the water. Correct. It really was. I think it, it, I think overall, you know, the world was looking at it like, okay, a stock car racing is not, you know, conducive to be able to run with you know, the you know, Le Mans or races like that, right? Even though, you know, the, the car, this car is very similar, you know, to that. You had drivers, you had 
seven-time cup champion Jimmy Johnson. You had F1 champ Jensen Button and a two-time Le Mans winner in Michael Rockefeller driving the car. And you had all of Hendrick Motorsports, you know, and everybody behind this. I mean, Goodyear made a special tire for the car. They put, they, they went out, uh, you know, uh, out of their way to make this thing successful and did a lot of testing. And it, it showed right away that, you know, there were still inherent problems with the next-gen car. And that was this, the biggest problem they've always had has been steering, the rack, where it's located, you know, the loads that these cars take, but less problems when they do road racing because the loads are not as high, you know, when you're going to that instead of going to Daytona or Dover or whatever. So it was more conducive for them. They had minimal problems, and the car had major speed. It was two and a half seconds faster than any GTE car when it was at Le Mans. And this was a major that, that's surprise. That's huge. Yes. So they actually, before the race started, they they actually put, they, normally the Garage 56 car has to start at the rear of the tail of the field. But the car had so much speed that it had to be placed behind the LMP2 car class ahead of all the GTE cars because it was so much faster than all the GTE cars. So it pretty much outperformed every form of GTE car that was there. So that's huge. And that's a production car with all the upgrades and everything to run, you know, in the uh, GTE or GTD Pro, that type of scenario in IMSA. So uh, interesting, very interesting. And I think really set a precedent. And I think it yeah, was... Yeah, that they could come over and do battle with it. You know, as said... Lamar's always been very arrogant towards NASCAR, and I think they uh, they kind of had to to set back and say, "Wow, you guys brought a quality piece that actually can compete with what we're doing over here." And and um and how many uh, pounds did they take out of the car? I think they took out six hundred pounds. Wow! Of what a next gen car would weigh. So that was because of the carbon brakes, because all the brake packages are steel, really heavy. So uh, the majority of that come out in like the brake packages, but they. They did a number of things. They ended up getting like about 600 pounds of, of weight off the car. So the car and the same thing. It's got a NASCAR engine in it, you know, so the power was there. And the car performed, you know, on the racetrack. You know, there's a lot of, you know, high speed and low speed corners at Le Mans. And it was able to really get the job done. So it just proved how proficient the car was in every regard. Uh, so, you know, and again, I think what it did do and the intention for it was not to go over and win the race by no. any means. It was a, uh, you know, a way to build bridges and to strengthen relationships through IMSA and the WEC, the World Endurance Championship, and to, you know, to create synergies for this global type of road racing, you know, platform. So I think it did everything it done. It, you know, everything that I listened to, uh, you know, during the race and after the race. You know, I think all of France and all of everybody that was there for the races, it was exciting. They loved it. They loved the new platform. They were, you know, very appreciative of what Jim France and what IMSA had done. And John Doonan spoke highly about the whole process and the way that everybody is working collectively together to grow motorsports in general. So all in all, it's kind of like a, a nice coming together of the world to, you know, to showcase racing the way that it has been intended over the years. And it's not as self-surfing as it used to be. I think it really is about the sport and entertaining people and showing what, if you stimulate people that, you know, have a desire to make something happen and they all have their unique way to put their own stamp on it. And they've allowed that and they come up with it. 
The one problem with that, obviously, is something that you hate, and that's BOP. So, you know, the balance of performance, that is the biggest situation or problematic thing that the sanctioning bodies have to come up with. So when you do something like this, you create disparity because everybody has their stamp on the car. You know, the big nostrils on the front of the hypercar or the LMDH car that, you know, that uh, BMW has, but it's very emblematic of a BMW. And then you've got the Cadillacs, you know, they were very sleek, you know, very nice lines. You had the Ferrari, you know, and so everybody's able to put their own unique thing on it. But when you do that, your cars have speed or less speed. And so there's a disadvantage or an advantage. And I know that you look at it in a manner in which that if you're, you know, if this sport, if you get to go out and build your car that, you know, if you're the fastest, you should get to be the fastest and nobody put any kind of restrictions or confines on. Correct. I, I believe that, um, you know, they should receive what they deserve. And if you have put forth all of the effort and all of the knowledge and you have hired the best people, that if it shows in the speed of your car, you shouldn't be penalized for that. So I don't quite understand the BOP in the road racing um, aspect because it does not seem fair at all, in my opinion. Well, you got to look at it from this standpoint, too. And it always has been this way with NASCAR. And we've gone through it. I've gone through it myself. I mean, you almost back then in, in, when we were racing, you had to have a full-time lobbyist with NASCAR <laughs> because everybody was sandbagging. Everybody was explain to the listeners what sandbagging is. Well, sandbagging is manipulating, you know, your test sessions and making the car appear that it's not as fast to get an advantage. And you would go out and you'd test and you wouldn't run flat out or you would run just only certain deals. You back off in the corners and you'd be testing things, trying to find speed. But yet when you go to Daytona and then you're asking for concessions after your testing, you're saying, saying, oh, we're not as fast here when you actually threw the test session. Yeah, these guys are essence. kicking our butt. These guys are kicking our butt. We need some concessions. We need a little bit more spoiler or less spoiler. We need a little bit this or that, a little more, you know. So. Knowing that you do have more speed, you're not showing it. So your expectation is lower. Yeah. And then going to Daytona and blowing them all away. So then, yeah, then you go to Daytona and the next thing you know, it's like, voila. <laughs> <laughs> Ooh, la la. Well, then NASCAR's hot. Right. So then you have, you know, the they've got been tricked, they've been duped. And, you know, then it's like, you know, the fury, right, of uh, of NASCAR. Well, so, that's just cheating. It is. <laughs> but I'm just saying that's always been something that's happened. And not that you're cheating, developing your car to the fullest degree of the word. No, that is cheating. If you're sandbagging, you're cheating. No, no, I no, I, I agree with that. But I'm saying now, you know, when you're talking about, you know, what we're talking about with BOP. When, you know, when you build a car that, you know, you feel like is fast and you go out and you showcase it like Toyota has done, they've been, they've won them off the last five years. So they were kind of like, you know, the Ferrari back of, you know, the sixties, mm -hmm. right? So they've been the dominant force and in all the WEC races, they're leading the points, they're running well, they have speed and they've shown speed. And then the Ferrari comes to test and shows speed as well. So throughout all of the things that have been happening through all the races, you know, the sanctioning body, um, the FIA and ACO, they have, you know, a committee and they opted to put, uh, to change the BOP before the first day of practice at Le Mans. And they put, and they did it with weight. So they, they do it with ballast, right? So 
they basically put like 37 ki- uh, kilograms on the Toyota. Now, 37 kilograms is 80 some pounds, you know, and then they put on the Ferrari, they put, I think it was 24 kilograms. And then the Cadillac, they put 11 grams and then three on the Porsche. So you're talking, you know, and you might ask, okay, how does this relate to actual speed or time on the racetrack? And from what I could gather, you know, 37 kilograms is equal to about 1.2 seconds on the racetrack, which is if you know how fast they're going, that is time over distance. That is a lot lot. of car lanes. That is a lot. lot. So you break that down, right? And you're talking, you know, from from 37 kilograms, you're talking maybe like, uh, you know, uh, that's like 1.2 seconds. Okay. So you get down to like 24 and Ferrari is like looking at seven tenths. And then you get down to Cadillac, and that's like a half a second, a little over half a second. And then you're talking about, you know, you know, uh, I think, you know, Porsche, the Porsche only had like three kilograms or whatever, right? So, so basically they're so weighting them down. They're weighting they're them saying, down. They're saying, we're, we're going to pull you down, down a right, little bit. To pull together the race so it is more competitive, right? So, you know, not a major amount of deal, but still you are compromising the effort that these guys did, you know, to become the fastest car to win them all. But again, it's a 24-hour event. There are a lot of variables. And ultimately, the competition was stout. And it's to, our, to everyone's surprise, cars that didn't get anything put on them at all, right? And they, you know, and they didn't really think were factors like Peugeot, uh, Glickenhaus. Uh, some of these other teams that were there, they did surprisingly well and performed exceptionally well. And to the degree that Peugeot, France, you know, based company, um, they, their car has not, has, has shown, you know, maybe not as competitive at other racetracks and things, but they, they, they led the race and they ran really well. And I think it was a real credit to, uh, to Peugeot and the effort that they did. And, and it was very well received. So again, a lot of great things, a lot of great storylines and a lot of things came out of this year's Le Mans. For me, I, it's the first time I ever was able to have access to watch it. And I watched the majority of the race, you know, from the start through the first day. Yeah, you were hooked to it. (laughs) And I watched it all the way through the first day into the night, kind of watched the, you know, Xfinity race, you know, somewhat as well, but I still had it next to me. Yeah, it was 24 hours of constant racing. It was. And I didn't watch it through the night. I went to bed at whatever, 11 o'clock. I didn't watch it the night. I got up in the morning and I caught the last, the last, maybe the last hour, maybe it was hour and 10 minutes, right? So, and a lot of things happen throughout the night as they do in a 24 hour event. I know when I, that seems like when it happens, right? was when you're in the nighttime and then something happens, you know, it starts raining, it starts raining. I had the door blow off in the rain, you know, in a GT. You were the rain meister though. Uh, The rain meister. Yeah. You were known as the rain meister because no one wanted to run in the rain, but Derek could do it. So yeah, kind of like Mikey. (laughs) So anyways, you know, but that's the intriguing part, right? The race started, you know, and they had a major altercation, a major crash. And, you know, you got, you know, this thing slowed down immediately. So you're, you know, it's somewhat of a, you know, kind of crazy start to the race, you know, and it slows everything down. They're trying to get things all rectified and get the thing going. And then you have very unique things as far as these slow zones, um, you know, that you, these guys, when the cautions are out, you know, you can go fast for certain portions and then you have these slow zones that you have to come down to and, and carry this certain speed. So 
a lot of different things that I was trying to, you know, ascertain what was going on. But uh, anyways, it, once it racing got started and it was going great race, it was competitive. All the hyper cars were there together. Uh, they were the LMP2 cars were did an outstanding job there. And I'll tell you a little bit about a story there later. But I really enjoyed all the series and how how competitive they were. But there were a lot of wrecks. There was a lot of things happening. There was a lot of close, tight knit racing, which obviously creates problems and a lot of wrecks and some major wrecks. So it was there was just a lot going on. And, you know, through all of this, it, it was exciting to, you know, kind of get enthralled into the actual race itself uh, but i think you know for me understanding what had gone on with you know some of the uh, the things with the concessions that they had made and you know uh you know what had been done that you could tell that you know everybody there was still the, the cream still was rising to the top as you would say and you still could see you know who was going to be the dominant cars albeit without any, you know, casualties or problems or breakdowns. But, you know, there started to be some woes. And, you know, it, uh, you know, through the night, I, I, unbeknownst to me, they had a problem with the G, uh, with the Garage 56 car. They had a driveline issue, which sidelined them for an hour, hour and a half, and they had to fix that. And um, they were able to physically, you know, get that rectified, get back out, and they were able to finish the race, which was what their intent was, right? So well done on there on that part. Uh, and the the race, as it as it started to unfold, you know, there was not. I mean, guys were you know were really getting you know things handed to them, and there was a lot of adversity. And one of the big adversity was the Corvette racing, who was you know running the LMGTE AM car. Uh, Nikki Katzberg, Ben Keating, and uh, Nico Verone were driving, and. This uh, Ben Keating guy, he's he's out of Texas, car dealer, uh, runs a lot of his own equipment in, in uh, LMP2. And uh, I don't really understand how he's driving this, but, you know, I'm sure there was probably some financial things involved. But very talented guy, works really hard at his craft, and he drove some triple stints and all that. But they came back uh, shortly after the start. They had had a right front uh, damper failure, and they lost a couple of laps. And, you know, they were showcasing them coming in and fixing that, getting back to it. And it was pretty exciting that they worked all their way back until the next day through the night and into the morning and finally get back to the lead lap and then put themselves in a position to take the lead. And just a monumental effort for the Corvette. And uh, I was I was very you know intrigued by really, you know, the diligence and, you know, the staying you know, staying you know, in the moment and making things happen and did a nice job. And uh, so that was. Um, exciting for for the united states and and the corvette racing team and a great effort there uh and then uh i thought this was kind of a, a tidbit that i i really was i wanted to kind of make sure that i i mentioned was that at the end of this thing the the winners in the lmp2 division were this this small entity from poland and it was inter europol competition and these the, the father son were actual bakers in Poland. Mm. And 10 years ago, they started the LMP3 series and racing and brought themselves up in 10 years there at Le Mans and they win Le Mans. And what a great I just, story. It was a great story. And I thought it was very, there, like I told you, there was a lot of very unique storylines and things that, you know, it just made you kind of say, wow, that's, 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 that's great. 
you know, I mean, that's a small, I mean, Poland, they never, never won anything before, right? And they come there. And, <laughs> poor Poland, they poor never Poland, won anything. They didn't win anything, but, you know, they, 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 they stood out this uh, year at Le Mans. So I wanted to give them a, a hey, attaboy, and, uh, you know, say, hey, look, this group uh, worked well. And I thought it was just I wanted the father and son bakers, and they uh, go racing, and they kick somebody's butt all in the right. mall, right? Well, congratulations. Yeah, congratulations, Poland. Poland. <laughs> <And> so, <laughs> but anyways, the big story, obviously, really did come down to, you know, the Ferrari effort. And I think that versus Toyota, you know, this, that, that was the rivalry there. And of course, Cadillac on their heels and, you know, Cadillac, some of the teams, they had a few issues. The first big wreck was Action Express. They're right here out of Denver, North Carolina. And uh, that team, I think is owned by Jim France and they, the Wheeling car, and they were involved in that first crash, and that pretty much took them out of the. They ended up getting like eight, twelve laps down, or whatever, and they fought back, but were never really a factor. But the Chip Ganassi cars were very good. Um, you know, of course, the Frenchman, you know, uh, Sebastian Bourdais was very instrumental in that one of those cars and doing a nice job. And they were a factor, um, and just didn't seem like that they, you know, could keep the pace of the Ferrari. Uh, over the course of the event, they did have a lot of speed. So did the Porsche, the Penske Porsches. Uh, and they were all factors. They all led the races. And, you know, through, you know, the variations of how you have to pick, because you have to pit a lot for fuel. So you have a lot of constant changes of the guard and then everybody trying to get out quicker and, you know, make the thing happen and get the, the, to the lead. And then Peugeot would lead. But you could tell that it really was that, you know, and there was a lot, I mean, some very hard racing for early in that race. And I mean, these two Ferraris were going at it. You, I was surprised that they didn't have some kind of team orders to knock it off because these cats were blocking and I mean, they were, they were going at it and, uh, pretty, pretty entertaining if you're watching and you're thinking to yourself, okay, Ferrari, first time back 50 years, you got a fast car, you two knuckleheads, you know, let's, uh, just calm down, right? But they weren't <laughs> going to do it. I mean, they wanted each one wanted to win the fifty and the fifty-one, right? So I, it was very entertaining, and I loved uh, you know the commentary that was going on. Very well done, except for the guy that yells all the time. Yeah, well, that's that's Formula One. Just this guy wasn't really doing that so much. So. <laughs> um, but it was very it was very good. You know, Antonio Giovinazzi, who ran uh, in F one, um, he was driving. Uh, Alessandro uh, Pierre Guidi and James Collado were driving the the fifty-one Ferrari. And they ultimately, you know, were the ones that were the dominant force at the end. And the, the other, the other uh, Ferrari had an issue. They were very fast, but they had an issue and kind of relegated them out of the mix. So it really come down to Toyota and Ferrari. Toyota, the, you know, Gazoo Racing Toyota, they really were in a position to fight for it. And they had a small problem. I think they had, there's a problem. They got off or something. Somebody they were wrecking for them. Something transpired and they ended up having some repairs to make. Lots of the time bounced back, but never were ever, ever to make up the deficit really. So, you know, Ferrari ends up winning Le Mans for, and they hadn't been there for 50, 50 years. years. Wow. Yeah. That's quite a feat. So it's quite a story. And I want to tell you, you know, I've been part of some very big events, right? And I mean, we're talking the Daytona 500, you know, 250,000 people, the Brickyard, inaugural Brickyard, you know, 350,000 people there. And that can, it's, at those events, there's just a sea of humanity. And the same thing happened at Le Mans. And I visually saw this and this, 
And what they do there after the race is they open up all the gates. Every gate's open, and there is a flooding of 350,000 people that culminate onto the front straightaway to where the cars are at and where the ceremonies are going, kind of like F1 does as well, right? But this is, like you say, a sea of humanity. I mean, 350,000 people there. It is a sight to behold. And that is what, you know, you get to see, you know, the raw emotion of all these people wearing and flying their colors, their T-shirts, their paraphernalia of who they were for. And it really does show just how much motorsports means to people. And to see all of that unfold, yeah, I, I really enjoyed it. And so I just, I wanted to bring this to everybody's attention just so that I could maybe bring some sense of, of what it was like for somebody of myself who's a NASCAR orientated guy who's mm-hmm. starting to really enjoy more road racing, I've loved going to the 24 hours of Daytona, would love to be able to do that more and go there because it really is a great event. And all the things that make up racing, you know, the peril, the weather, the nighttime, the 24 hours, you know, all the things that a car has to endure, a driver has to endure, the crew people have to endure. There's a lot going on. And it was indicative of what really happened at uh, this year's 24 Hours Le Mans, this centenary, uh, centenary uh, edition. So, and, and I appreciate you bringing this all up. And I think from a, a standpoint from a diehard NASCAR Oval fan, which um, is what I was, road courses were never my favorite. And when we would have to go to one, I was like, oh, we got to put it in our, you know, our road course quota here. Um, really, the only one I enjoyed going to was Watkins Glen, to be truthful. And that's because I loved the venue. I loved the actual area around there. And it was fast, too. You know, Sonoma is definitely not one of my favorites. It's slow, in my opinion. You know, it, it just seems like it takes forever for him to get around. And, and you know how I feel about Indianapolis. But I think it does, um, it does tell us something when, as you say, the entire universe gets behind certain events. And Daytona 500 is a huge one here for the United States, but this Le Mans and all of the stories within it make up um, such a story of humanity. And that, and really the dream too. I want to say the American dream is not the American dream. It's, you know, it's the Polish dream or the Ferrari dream or, you know, whatever dream that you come from, it really does show that you can do anything that you put your mind to. Still, miracles are happening. Even, even though motorsports is primarily really run by money, you can still make a go and even win your division. And that's really a, a wonderful story. And, um, and if you, you know, have only liked ovals your whole life and you think that road courses are boring, maybe give it a shot again, you know, and definitely, um, you know, watch it live, watch it on TV and see if you can't, uh, maybe think broaden your horizons a bit. And, and learn to maybe appreciate a different discipline. Yes. So, so again, we uh, appreciate you you're listening. Uh, you can find us at DerekCope.club or RaceTheory.club. And we have a lot going on uh, you know, on our website there with some new and exciting things that will be coming down the road. And our ebook is on there and new chapters there are coming out soon. So keep an eye on what's going on. And we'll look forward to Race Theory and see you next time. Bye-bye. Thank you so much for listening. Did this episode give you some value? If so, please follow us on Facebook at Derek Cope and Instagram at Derek Cope double zero and leave a comment or question and use hashtag race theory. We can't wait to hear from you. See you on the next episode.